Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. I do have verses printed for you on your outline. I would also ask that you would have ready your Bibles. We will look at Acts chapter 9 later. It's on page 917 of your pew Bible. That's Acts chapter 9. We'll refer there in a little bit. Today our focus will be on verses 11 through 24, a bit of a biography of Paul as part of a show, what the gospel does in someone's life. But it gives us um, much information that is needed and helpful and necessary as we come to understand the gospel even more clearly. Galatians is a defense of the gospel. Shortly after the churches were established in Galatia, certain teachers came in and confused and distorted the message of the gospel by saying that acceptance or being right with God was dependent upon, yes, Christ, but also you must do these works of the law also. Uh, There was a bit of jealousy, perhaps, that went on among those Jewish believers uh, from Jerusalem, seeing these Gentiles come to faith and not having to go through the the supposed hoops that they had to go through. And so they come in after some of the apostles and missionaries were there and say, it's Christ plus this. And so Paul writes to correct this because Christ plus something is not the gospel at all. And so we have this defense of the gospel given in the book of Galatians. Hear now God's word, Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown to person, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the message that our sins are forgiven through faith alone and the finished work of Christ on the cross is indeed good news. It's clearly evidenced in the life of Paul. And we see that the gospel is not man-made. For its origin is nothing less than directly from your will. Teach us afresh what you are continuing to do through the gospel. Saving people, transforming people, using broken vessels to bear witness to your saving grace so that you may be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Very, very simply, the gospel is believing in Christ and his work on the cross. For your, on your behalf. Paul says faith is an instrument of justification. That means 
Faith alone in Christ is what makes a person right with God now and for eternity. Faith means receiving and resting upon Christ and His righteousness. Faith means believing, resting, trusting, relying upon Christ's merit, not our own, to be made right with Christ. In fact, he says as much later in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, when Paul writes, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And I repeat this because Paul repeats it over and over and over again. So I never feel bashful or wonder if I've said it too much because Paul keeps saying it for the simple reason it takes very little for us to start adding our works. And so Galatians over and over again reemphasizes the gospel and what it is. Paul works to communicate the gospel to his audience then and to us today. And he finds it necessary in light of the apparent challenges to his apostolic authority to give a defense of the gospel, but also a defense of his own calling to ministry. Why he should even be listened to. And this is a little bit of what we look in on verses 11 through 24, no doubt. So we have the life of Paul, but we also learn from the life of Paul some lessons regarding the gospel that he's writing to defend. Indeed, Paul's life story confirms his apostleship. And it gives us insight about the origin of the gospel in how it works, something we all need to know. First, let's consider Paul's life together. It is an amazing life. Uh, by reading this passage we have before us and several other New Testament passages, we can piece together a pretty clear picture of Paul's pre-conversion life into his discipleship and then his uh, being commissioned as an apostle and missionary for the church. We know a little bit about his training. In Acts chapter 22, when he's speaking uh, to a crowd gathered, he's talking a little bit about his up bringing as far as his education and his academic career. And he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up to the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. So he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. Let me be clear. He was not trained via the Internet or by listening to CDs or getting tapes or in a crowded hall, lecture hall with more than the, uh, the amount of people here gathered. That's not what it meant to be a student of Gamaliel when he says he was educated at his feet. It means that in the old Jewish style of teaching and discipleship, he sat literally at the feet of this famous teacher of the law during Paul's day. Twelve or less would be with this teacher. Three or four would be the particular focus of that teacher. That's the kind of training he received from the most zealous of all teachers of rabbinic Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul had something else he brought to it as well. Not only was he zealous for the law and upholding it in a Pharisee religious sense, but he also had a deep sense of his ethnic identity as the covenant people and was offended by anyone who would say that they too had those rights, Christians especially. So not being any kind of weakling or someone who just hid behind a robe and all the entrapments of the Pharisee, he also bore a sword. And Paul was a tough guy. He coupled his academic prowess with his zeal, sometimes violent zeal, to be a persecutor of the church early in the church's life. We know that as a young man in his mid-twenties, he stood by and held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. We read in Acts 7:58 during the stoning of Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man 
named Saul. That's on purpose that Luke includes this. So we recognize how long-standing, just two years after the ascension of Christ, the stoning of Stephen, we already have this young zealot, Saul, overseeing the killing of one of the early apostles. He was on the fast track to Phariseeism and beyond. That's why he says in verse 14 of our text today, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. We know further as he writes to the Philippians, he talks about how we shouldn't put our confidence in the flesh as he did. But by the way, he says to the people, if you're putting confidence in your flesh, and I'm telling you not to, you ought to listen to me, because if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it would have been me, he says. Listen to what he says to Philippians. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one can mess with me, Paul says, as it relates to zealousness, extremeness, radicalness. Now, look in your Bibles in Acts chapter 9. Let's review what brought this man, Saul, from this place of zealousness for the traditions of his fathers to the point where he would promote the death of the apostles and other Christians. See what happens when the gospel comes to him. Acts 9, starting at verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. The synagogues is the first place where the church began. where The gospel was being interpreted rightly and believers started to sprout up. So Saul went directly to the synagogues to arrest people who were preaching the gospel. So he received these letters from the high priest, continuing in verse 2, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now you can understand what Ananias is thinking. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for, for, the sake of, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Through this, some of the other accounts in the New Testament, we can piece together a chronology of Paul's life. He was trained by Gamaliel as an older teen. At approximately the age of 25 or 26, he is present for the stoning of Stephen, already a zealot for Judaism. Two years after Stephen was stoned, Christ met him on the road to Damascus. He stayed in Damascus for three years, growing in wisdom and faith, learning all that he had discovered in the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in Christ over this period of time. He then went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, approximately 39 or 40 A.D. And it is not until 45 A.D. that Luke records Paul on his first missionary journey. So there is a period from the time of his conversion to the time of his first missionary journey of seven to eight years. We learned several things, but I'll say these two. When we come to Christ, we can tell people about Jesus immediately. He does that. But before we're commissioned to go as an official representative, there needs to be training in time. We see this in the life of Paul. But what we see, most importantly, is that what he received, what changed his life, what totally turned him around, was not from man. It was from God. This is why he says in the first verse that we are studying this morning, verse 11 of chapter 1 of Galatians, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He simply means to say in the text before us that he was not standing in the checkout aisle and picked up a magazine and discovered what the gospel was, and just went out and taught it. God talked to him. God met him and spoke to him the words of the gospel. And it says in 1 Corinthians 12 that he was caught up in the third heaven. He was given special direct revelation as an apostle directly from the risen Christ. That's what it is to be an apostle. Direct commission, direct revelation from the risen Christ. Paul received it. Paul's life story serves to authenticate his apostleship, which then gives him the authority to speak and to write. Paul's life story, though, also teaches us something else, every one of us here, something about the gospel, lessons we learn about the gospel and its effect, where it comes from, how it comes to us. We learn these things and what effect it has on us, witnessing what happens in Paul's life. First, where does the gospel come from? Look at the verse I just referenced, verse 11 and then verse 12 of Galatians 1. I would have you know 
The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he didn't receive it by picking up some fad and propagating it. He didn't come under some certain guru or teacher or preacher and learn it and then become that person's number one uh, number one spokesperson. He didn't respond at some evangelistic meeting, crusade, or tent revival, then go forth preaching that gospel. Early on, when Paul was first converted, he didn't even have the need at that moment to check with the other apostles because he had met the risen Christ who told him the gospel. The message Paul preached and taught was directly from God. The gospel is directly from God. The reason the gospel of Scripture is the same from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture is that it is from God and not man. Man is innately incoherent and inconsistent, but God is not. And when you look at the Bible from the very beginning to the very end, you have the same gospel message over and over and over again. This is one of the chief reasons we know it's true. We know it's from God. It's not made up. People can't agree. But God agrees completely and thoroughly. Think of this. The continuity of the gospel throughout Scripture. Starting in Galatians or Genesis 3, when sin enters, the pronouncement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that it will send a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent, undo the work of the serpent, pay for sins. It doesn't stop there. The whole Old Testament shows how the redeemer is coming, despite man. The saving of Noah is a great picture of grace. He could have wiped everyone out, but instead he raises up a faithful one, and he saves people so the Messiah would come and save. The calling of Abraham is a gracious call where he promises this man to make of him a great nation, not just to make a great nation, but so that Messiah would come, the Redeemer would come through Abraham's line. Israel's development from Abraham to the time of Joseph is the constant work of God to maintain a people, despite all their brokenness, to bring forth Messiah, the one who would pay for their sins. The gospel from beginning to end. The call of Moses to lead the people out of, of slavery. This picture of ultimate spiritual redemption as well. The giving of the sacrifices is not a means to salvation. It's a picture of salvation that would pre- be provided for in the Passover lamb who would be Christ. The putting of the blood in the post is a picture of the gospel. Covered by the blood, you're saved. Not covered, you're not saved. Constant call to trust in God's Redeemer. The prophecies of the Savior to come. Isaiah's whole section of the suffering servant who would pay the price for our sins. Redeem us. The prophecies of the Savior to come are throughout the prophets. The arrival of Christ by miraculous means. The declaration of salvation that comes when this old Jew, Simeon, sees Jesus and says, Salvation has visited us this day. Now I can die in peace. I've seen the Redeemer. And Matthew says he is the one who's come to save his people from their sins. There is a continuity story from beginning to end about what the gospel is. The only people that mix that up, that's us, not God. It's clear throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. The message of salvation by Christ through the whole of his earthly ministry as he speaks it. His life, his death, and his rising again, his commissioning of the apostles. And now we have the example of Saul who's given the gospel directly from God. And through all of the Bible, through every event, one thing is clear. One thing is coherent. The gospel. Paul did not make up the gospel any more than I did. The gospel comes from God. 
How does the gospel come to us? Something else we learn. Look at verse 15 of our text. Galatians 1. Notice how it comes to Saul. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you see how the gospel comes? The gospel comes by divine appointment. The gospel comes according to God's providential planning. The gospel comes to us, to us exactly when God wants it to. Now, you may hear the gospel, but it doesn't come to you until you believe. And you only believe when he appoints that you will believe. You don't believe until God calls you by his grace. See what Paul says, verse 15. But when he had set me apart before I was born, predetermined by God, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. When God appointed the right time in Saul's life, that is when he brings the gospel to him. And here's the greatest thing. The gospel comes to us by God's grace, totally despite what we've done, where we've been, or who people think we are. It's God's will. In fact, he has the continual practice of picking people at the, humanly speaking, most inconvenient time of their life. There was nothing that Saul would gain by converting to Christianity. In fact, he had it all to lose. His social status, his economic status, his ecclesiastical status. There was nothing. His political status, it was all going to be gone in conversion. But when the gospel comes to you, you don't care. One way you know if the gospel's come to you is how much you care about all that stuff anymore. Now, I recognize there will be all sorts of discomfort among people who come to Christ initially because before, you were doing things and thinking things a certain way and it didn't bother you. Now it's gotten complicated for you because you're in Christ. The scales have fallen down. Now, for many, that's release, in relief initially. Recognizing the forgiveness of their sins and God's acceptance of you. And that gives you great joy. But for others, as you stop to think about it, you realize there are things in your life that you don't like anymore, but you're not sure how to get, out, get, get, get them out of your life. It's difficult. The scales come down. But make no mistake, when the gospel comes, it comes supernaturally, and it changes everything. You never look at anything again the same way. This is what happens with Saul, and it happens with us. Maybe your story is not as dramatic as what happens with Saul. But I think many of you have dramatic stories. I've heard them. But all of us, in heaven's eye, have a radically dramatic story because we were once estranged. This is why Paul says to the Ephesians and to us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It may come at the most humanly inconvenient time, but it comes exactly 
when God wants it to come. And the scales will fall and you will be able to see and you will no longer be oblivious to the eternal cliffs that you are going over, but you will be awakened and you'll be awakened to the sin in your life as well that you will need God to remove. Start ridding. That's painful. But the gospel comes to us in supernatural power. What effect does it have on us? Look at verse 16, the second part. For Paul, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. The change that happens in Paul is he changes literally within a couple days from the zealousness for persecution of the church to a zealousness of preaching the one who he sought to persecute. Think of how radical and extreme Paul was for Judaism and the persecution of Christians. Then look at what Paul is now transformed into. Look at verse 21 of our text. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Judea, the center of Christianity. Here he is born again and now going and preaching. He hasn't yet gone to the center of Christianity at that time, Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 23, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The gospel changes us. The gospel changed Paul, and so it changes us. Paul would not gain anything worldly from converting. And here's a guy who was given the authority to hunt down in prison and even kill Christians. Totally transformed. You know, somewhere in Acts chapter 13, Saul takes on the name Paul. And unlike, unlike Jacob, who receives a new name from God, and unlike Abram, who receives Abraham as a new name from God, we are not told that God gives Saul the new name Paul. I happen to think he took the name on himself. He changed his name from Saul the namesake of that covenant-breaking king in the Old Testament, and took on Paul, a totally Romanized, no Jewish background name that means small. He's transformed. Used to be all about him. Now he's small. This is why the man who wrote 13 of 27 books in the New Testament, the man who had to confront Peter, some who say is the head of the church, Paul confronts Peter. That man says, 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. From a position of humility now, that's what the gospel does. It puts us in a place of humility, and from that place, God grows his church. That's the change the gospel has on us. The center of our universe goes from being us to Christ. Finally, my favorite verse and a half in this section. It's 23, 24. All of this is summed up. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Do you see why they glorified God because of Paul? It wasn't because of how righteous he was, because of his academic credentials, or any of the other reasons that man glorifies another man. In fact, it was... For the very reason that he was so degraded, he was so depraved, he was so wicked in what he had done, that that transference from that person to this new person 
is the very reason people started believing the power of the gospel, because that's what he does. We may think that God can only use certain people, and I'm sure someone here feels bound, thinking there's chains of my past, something I've done, I cannot be used of God. But God would say, no, in fact, that's exactly the person I use. You're the person I need to use. And he'll do it. does it constantly. takes people that you would think should have no place in the church, And they're the most effective witnesses for the gospel. Because people see that, and they see the message, they see the transformation, and they say, wow. Wow. And they glorify God because of you. God has long been in the practice of taking the foolish things of the world to prove his wisdom. He has long been demonstrating his amazing glory through broken vessels, radically broken vessels. God has always been about shedding his amazing grace against the broken backdrop of sinful humanity. The Bible is a long litany of broken, battered, sin-torn, messed up, seriously flawed, dysfunctional people who are graciously used by God to show forth His glory. You know, when critics point to the Bible and show all the sin in it, all the debauchery of the supposed saints in the Bible... The violence, the hideous stuff in the Bible is some means to discredit it, to say somehow, see, we can't believe this because of it. I want to cry out and say, don't you get it? This is exactly the point. The Bible's the truth about humanity. And there's no hero in the Bible except Christ. He's the hero of the scripture. You've read it wrong if you think Daniel's it, or you think Abraham's it, or Moses is it. The very reason they're so messed up is to show Christ. That's what the Bible's message is. That's why it's honest about humanity. It's honest about what's going on out there. God uses a drunk like Noah to propagate redemption. A coward and a weakling who lies about his wife and says he's a sister so the king can take advantage of her if necessary. Abraham to bring forth redemption. That's who he brings. A deceiver like Jacob. A group of backstabbers who are going to kill their own brother because they don't like the favoritism of the father. God uses them for salvation for us. He uses a stuttering, cowardly, Egyptian-trained leader with an anger problem like Moses to bring salvation to us. He uses a wishy-washy, flip-flopping nation like Israel who never can see what God does right before their face. He uses them to bring the gospel, to bring good news, to show the perfection of Christ. He uses a king that consults witches, a king who's an adulterer and a murderer, a king who marries 700 women and apostatizes at the end of his life, a group of cowardly denying disciples, a Jewish zealot named Saul that breathed out death and destruction upon the church. God uses such people. Certainly he can use you. He can use me. That's the message of the gospel. That's what it does. It changes us. It's from God. We receive it when he wants us to receive it. Then he empowers us by it. And he makes other people say, that's true. Look at that person. What's happened? He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, the message that our sins are forgiven through faith in the finished work of Christ and the cross is good news. Teach us afresh what you are continuing to do through the gospel. Let no one here remain in the shackles of their past or some sin they think you will not forgive. I pray, Father, that you would free them by the gospel again today. You're still saving people, still transforming people, still constantly using broken vessels to bear witness to your saving grace so that you may be glorified. We pray thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.